Hey, it's Anita, and this is the Anita Posh Show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Anita Posh Show, where it is my pleasure to keep you up to date with topics around Bitcoin on a global stage and also the local impact it has on people like you and me. In this episode, I talk with Blockstream's Chief Strategy Officer Samson Mao about Blockstream's cypherpunk origins and their far-stretching engagement in the Bitcoin space. From their green wallet, to their mining business, to the liquid sidechain and the Blockstream satellites. As always, you can watch this interview on YouTube and you can listen to it on the go in your favorite podcast player. Just search for my name, Anita Posh with a C, and please subscribe to my podcast. And now, a short word from my sponsors, and then on to the show. Enjoy! Many people worry about the right storage for their Bitcoin. And yes, holding them isn't always easy. Smartphones get lost, hard drives can crash, and online wallets get hacked frequently. The safest way of storing cryptocurrencies long-term is offline in a physical way. That's why Coinfinity developed the Card Wallet, the professional and easy cold storage solution. The Card Wallet supports various security features such as high-quality materials and tamper-proof features which prevent the manipulation of the card and make it a safe place for your beloved coins. Get yourself a Card Wallet now. You will get 20% off if you order at cardwallet.com slash anita. That's cardwallet.com slash Anita. Do you want to stay up to date with the things that happen in Bitcoin from my point of view? Then subscribe to Anita's Weekly, my newsletter with articles, videos, quotes, short tips on how to use Bitcoin and all that for free. Subscribe to Anita's Weekly at anita.link weekly. Hello, Samson. Welcome to the Anita Posh Show. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for having me, Anita. It's great to be on. Samson, uh, I'll start very directly asking you a question about your, your history, basically, your professional uh, life. Is it true that you started as a social media intern at Blockstream? Yeah, I started that even <laughs> before they paid me. So <laughs> I, oh. Adam back owes me some wages. <laughs> And and you wanted in in uh, the value of Bitcoin back then, or like the the US dollars in Bitcoin back then. Yes, that'd be <laughs> of ideal. Of course, but that's a great uh, career, I would say, from the social media intern, uh, from an unpaid to the chief strategy officer. Yeah, well, there's some story about that. There's a story about that. Oh, is it? It's a, I guess an interesting story. Do you want to tell us about that? Um, sure. You know, <laughs> this is like back in 2015, I think, uh, when uh, a lot of people had conspiracy theories about Blockstream. So I, I just helped to debunk them because I thought they were pretty much nonsense. And you know, back then, like some serious people were taking these uh, conspiracy theories that Blockstream is controlled by the banks and bankers and um, you know, setting out to destroy Bitcoin and some legitimate people, uh, seemingly, seemingly legitimate people thought that was really the case. So I just uh, tried to set the record straight and explain, you know, that that's not true. And 
why it's ridiculous. And then eventually I ended up joining Blockstream. So that's the that's history. Yeah. And but it's also a fact, I think, that many people still say uh, Blockstream is controlling Bitcoin. Yeah, but I think that narrative has uh, died down a lot. It's not as prevalent as it used to be. You know, back in during the scaling wars or the uh, block size wars, um, that was like the topic every day. <laughs> but these days, it seems to be more relaxed, and um, th the development of Bitcoin is really decentralized. Like we 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 still contribute, but we're not the biggest contributor, nor do we have the most amount of developers on staff, which is was never really an issue. But uh, even if it was, it's no longer a thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, due to the fact that the space is growing, the the the, the few that Blockstream has too a too big influence is is also like going away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, so there's more news about Bitcoin every day in the in in the media. So people are also like distracted from all these these news because you Blockstream is doing a variety of things in this space, and I find that very interesting. But before we um, get to that, um, tell us a little bit. How did you even find out about Bitcoin? Uh, so I think it was 2013 or so. I read uh, I read about it in uh, TechCrunch. Uh, I think it was an article about how to mine Bitcoin. Um, I, I'd seen it pop up in the press, but I never really dug into it until I read that article about mining. And then that was kind of what put me down the rabbit hole and reading white paper and trying to mine for myself. But uh, it was already too late to mine on the laptop. But I actually did set up everything. I set up a mining pool account uh, I set up a Coinbase account and I, I tried for a couple of days to mine. Mm -hmm. But I, th I think that was what was interesting for me, like understanding that anybody could participate in that network and it wasn't centrally controlled. Okay. And, and I guess that's also the thing that interested you, like uh, to, to make a career in that space? Um, I never really thought I would uh, make a career. So it, it just kind of was uh, a stroke of luck that I, I got into the Bitcoin space. So I had started my game company, Pixelmatic. It's still running today. Uh, we're, we're building on a lot of Blockstream technology, actually. So it's interesting how things turn out. But um, I had started Pixelmatic in 2011. And then I think in 2014, I met my friend Bobby. He was the CEO of BTC China at the time um, uh, for a Christmas Eve party. And then we started talking about Bitcoin. And I got my first one from him. And... Then uh, I started a role as an advisor at BTC China, helping them to uh, improve their engineering and product development. And then eventually they offered me the role of COO because the previous CEO had left. So um, that's how I got, kind of got into it. And then the, the whole scaling war started up and I kind of got pulled into it even more at that point. Mm -hmm. Uh, but And why did you then change to Blockstream from BTC China? Well, um, my experience with uh, Blockstream was basically signing up BTC China for the Liquid Network. So when they first um, told us about the this concept of sidechains to scale Bitcoin, I thought it was really interesting and it had a lot of potential. And I thought uh, you know, it could be interesting to work on the tech stack, work on the infrastructure rather than running an exchange. So I think I met with Adam in 2016 in, in Milan. And he said, you know, why don't you come in and join us? So I, I made the decision to unwind at BTC China and uh, join up with Blockstream. And yeah, 
that's mm-hmm. that's been the journey since. Okay, cool. So, um, so can you tell us a little bit about Blockstream's vision, uh, like from when you joined in 2016 to today and to the future? I mean. Um, we are going to talk about liquid and sea lightning and all this other other stuff too, but but um, like why is Blockstream doing all that? Well, I think um, Blockstream's mission is really to augment Bitcoin. A lot of the things that we do are to try to improve Bitcoin on a multitude of levels. So we contribute to the core protocol. We contribute to layer two scaling solutions like liquid, like lightning, as you mentioned. Um, we have the, the Blockstream satellite network, <laughs> which uh, broadcasts Bitcoin blocks uh, around the world. And you know everything we do is really to make Bitcoin better, to improve Bitcoin. And what we're trying to build is the future of finance that lives on top of uh, Bitcoin as a base layer. So a number of things that we've rolled out are kind of building on top of uh, Bitcoin on top of liquid in layers to offer new products and services. And more recently, we're pivoting more into financial services, and we can chat about that too. But um, one of those is the Blockstream mining note, which effectively tokenizes our mining operation into these uh, security tokens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. And you, one can say that Blockstream has a bit of the a cypherpunk philosophy, doesn't it? Because uh, I mean, Adam Beck is one of your founders. And um, I think the good thing in, uh, on this, in the cypherpunk philosophy is that you only um, want to collect as much data as you really need, or let's say uh, the least possible. Um, is this a factor that's in, in all you do, like in all your products? Yeah, well, I think the ethos is like cypherpunks write code. So we very much produce a lot of code. Uh, everything we do is open source. So, you know, Liquid is based off of Elements, a fork of Bitcoin. That's open source. The Blockstream Satellite Project is open source too. Um, basically, everything we're doing is open source and freely available for people to uh, contribute to, participate in. And um, I guess what you're mentioning, yes, privacy is also a part of it too. So we are very much... Um, champions of privacy. So Liquid and Lightning are also privacy enhancing technologies too. Um, you mentioned like uh, logging data, right? So for our wallets, uh, Blockstream Green or Aqua, we don't log user data. Um, we also have an Explorer instance running too um, at blockstream.info that also does not log. So it's very much part of our core ethos to uh, champion privacy and help uh, protect the privacy of users too. Mm, I like that a lot. Uh, yeah, and um, we were talking about liquid. Let's start with uh, diving into liquid. Um, many people, I guess, don't know what liquid is. Can you please explain it? Yeah. So liquid is a sidechain, and uh, Blockstream was actually founded off of a white paper uh, describing sidechains. So this is kind of an invention of Adam Back and a few others. It's a way to extend the functionality of Bitcoin with uh, layered tech. So. It's a separate blockchain. It's secured by a group of functionaries. And that's a subset of the 60 some odd members of that liquid federation. So it, it's not a proof of work chain. It's a uh, signed blockchain. So these uh, 15 functionaries are effectively signing blocks every single minute. And because it's a separate blockchain, we can have different attributes. So a liquid block is uh, coming every minute compared to roughly 10 minutes on the Bitcoin network. And that's because it's signed. So it just goes round robin and all the members sign off on the block. 
it's uh, very much clockwork. And we also have enhanced privacy in Liquid too. So we have confidential assets and confidential transactions. So if I sent you a, a Liquid Bitcoin in the Liquid network, you can't actually tell that I sent you a Liquid Bitcoin. It could have been Liquid Tether or a Liquid Canadian Dollar or a Liquid Japanese Yen token or an NFT too. So there's just no way to tell. So it's a way to improve privacy. And the primary use case for Liquid was originally for inter-exchange settlement. So from mo for moving coins between exchanges or moving assets between different exchanges very rapidly. But the, I think the use case has extended a lot. So you can actually take Liquid Bitcoin out of the network and put it into your Blockstream Green wallet or your Aqua wallet or any number of other wallets now that are starting to support it. But effectively, it opens up a, a wide range of new things that can be done. So HODL HODL is one such service that's using Liquid um, to provide lending services. So you can lend peer-to-peer -peer lend to other people. Um, BISC, the decentralized exchange, is trying to implement Liquid as its own base layer just because the cost of Bitcoin transactions is getting a bit prohibitive for their uh, previous model. So they're trying to build everything on, on top of Liquid. Uh, but I think the most important thing is Liquid shows you can pretty much do anything with Bitcoin with this kind of technology. You don't need to make a new blockchain and have a new token. The native currency of Liquid is still Bitcoin. So to get a Liquid Bitcoin, what you're doing is you're pegging in Bitcoin from the main chain. So you're locking it up and then you get one Liquid Bitcoin. So there's only ever going to be 21 million Liquid Bitcoin. You can't print more, create more. And there's no need for another token or an ICO or anything like that because you, know, you already have Bitcoin and you can lock it up in liquid and use it uh, to do a number of things. Mm -hmm. So as soon as I have uh, a Bitcoin or a fraction of a Bitcoin, I could take it to liquid. And I also have then this, like the, this Bitcoin in liquid, but I mm -hmm. can't use it in Bitcoin anymore. Uh, how does this work? Yeah, so you can peg it back out and you go through one of the liquid members to convert back to Bitcoin. So an average user will use like an exchange like Bitfinex to convert uh, liquid Bitcoin back to Bitcoin. Or you can use SideShift or SideSwap or a number of services now that provide the service. But um, yeah, when you get liquid Bitcoin, you can use it in a number of places. You can spend it on the Blockstream store too uh, because mm -hmm. we accept it. Um, we recently helped launch this uh, NFT platform called Miratoshi. So you can bid on artwork on Rotoshi with liquid Bitcoin and other liquid assets too. But there's a number of use cases and different uh, ways to use liquid Bitcoin. And if you want to go back to Bitcoin, you could just peg it back out and get Bitcoin one-to-one -one, as always. And do I have more privacy uh, with liquid Bitcoin than with Bitcoin? Yes, because you have the confidential transactions. So once you once you have liquid Bitcoin, um, unless you do an unblinded transaction, nobody can see what you're sending in the network. Everything is encrypted. Okay, that's interesting because then it's basically as good as Monero or, or Zcash. Uh, I think it's uh, there. There are different trade-offs, but I think that it does service use case really well. So if you're folk, like if you're thinking Liquid is for financial use cases, like moving funds between exchanges, then it's it's very fast, very cheap, and it's private. So. Uh, there are these bots that monitor exchange wallets and they'll see, okay, someone deposited uh, 200 Bitcoins to this exchange. Well, then other people can trade against them because they know that they're, they're likely selling the, those Bitcoin or, you know, they're moving Tether on ERC rails and you can see someone moved $100 million of Tether somewhere. 
But with Liquid, nobody can see any of that. So it, it does confer a lot of privacy to users. And I guess also for individuals, like if I want to send someone something to my friend in Africa, um, she or he could use it to send it to someone else or to, to pay it out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, I mean, layer two solutions can be used to aggregate funds too. So if you're getting paid, um, I don't know, per job, I think there's a new site called Zaprite that's using Liquid too. But let's say you're doing work for Bitcoin. Instead of um, losing fees uh, by getting Bitcoin transactions and trying to aggregate the UTXOs later, you can just get paid in Liquid Bitcoin and then convert that to Bitcoin in one transaction. So you can get a number of small transactions and convert them all to Bitcoin at once. Mm -hmm. uh, like the same as in, in Lightning? Similar, but similar, but different. There's different uh, use cases, oh, I think. Okay, what are the different use cases? Well, I think Lightning is better suited for uh, micropayments or small payments. So, mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe under $20 if you're... Because uh, Lightning depends on routing. You, you have to have uh, channel capacity and you have to balance that capacity all the time. But you're really relying on others in the network to route your transaction through. Whereas... For Liquid, you know, I send you one Liquid Bitcoin. It's just like Bitcoin. I sent it to you. There's no need to route or balance or mm -hmm. worry about those things. So Lightning is good when you're when you have incoming outgoing transactions. But if you're only getting incoming transactions, you're going to have some liquidity issues. So if the example I gave before, if you're doing uh, work and getting paid constantly, then you, you're, all your capacity is inbound. It's just incoming payments. And then you'll have to deal with that later on. But for Liquid, you know, it doesn't matter because it's just you got the asset and you move the asset as you would like Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And uh, how does the growth uh, in the Liquid network, the development, how does it look like? Um, well, we launched it in 2018 uh, officially. So that was October 2018, I think, when we had the first Liquid block. So I think in terms of transaction growth, uh, because we can't really tell uh, transaction dollar transaction volumes because of the privacy of the network. But we can see from the transaction count, we're more or less on par with Bitcoin um, because Liquid is like uh, three years old. When Bitcoin was about three years old, it had similar transaction volumes. So I think we're on a good track and we're, I think we've exceeded or we're very close to 3000 coins in the network currently. So. Um, it's still the main use case is for inter-exchange settlement, moving large amounts of funds uh, to and from exchanges or between exchanges. But we did get some numbers from Paulo, the CTO of Bitfinex, and it's the average liquid transaction size is about one, L, one liquid Bitcoin, one LBTC. So it, it's still that main use case right now. But he is saying that we're, there's a month over month, the volumes are doubling on liquid. So it's very encouraging. Okay. But still, I mean, one Bitcoin as the smallest or, or average transaction size is quite big. Yeah. Yeah, but, but that's the exchange data, right? So mm -hmm. he's looking at people dealing with the exchange. But if you look at HODL HODL um, mm -hmm. and the lending market, the amounts are much smaller, actually. So I think they would, uh, if you if you analyze all those data sets there, you would see that the, it's probably smaller transactions. Mm -hmm. And are you looking for more companies to join the federation or is this now a fixed circle of, of contributors? So I think uh, the Liquid Federation is more like a trade association. It's a number of companies that are all using this technology and ideally they're they're all integrated and interoperable with one another. So there's no real limit to the number of people that can join the Federation. You just 
have to be using Liquid and apply to be a member. Um, we're not actively looking for people to join. I think at this stage right now, people are reaching out to the, the Liquid Federation itself. So there are three governing boards and they're reaching out to the member board and saying, you know, we'd like to join or they've just built and integrated something on Liquid. And we find out and we suggest to them, maybe you guys should apply to join. But uh, Blockstream itself doesn't manage the Liquid network. It's actually governed by its own members. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So they they decide themselves who can join and, and Blockstream, you are only like uh, a, a part of it. Yes, we're, we're the technology provider. So we help to uh, work on the code base, uh, roll out up upgrades and hardware upgrades when it's time for those. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, another layer two technology. Let's talk about Lightning. Um, what I'm interested in is, what I maybe also don't understand, why are there uh, different implementations and what's the difference in the implementations? Like um, you are working on C-Lightning yes. and then there's Lightning Labs, they work on a different implementation. What is the difference there? Is it the code language or what is it? Yeah, I, th I think it's the primarily languages, but everything is interoperable and all the Lightning teams do talk I think every week or two weeks with each other. So they're very much in sync, but it, it, it doesn't need to be one client. So everybody runs Bitcoin Core, but with layer two, uh, as long as they've specced it out correctly and everyone is implementing it correctly, then you should have uh, perfect interoperability between any different Lightning client. Um, I, I think uh, the, the primary difference really for C Lightning uh, Blockstream's implementation is that it's more geared towards um, high-performance server use. So it, it's very, uh, very uh, compact and very much designed for you know, high throughput. Um, I don't know too much about the LND specification uh, or client, but I just think that uh, our focus is really on building plugins and you know, focusing on infrastructure level support. Mm -hmm. Is this a general philosophy of Blockstream? Because I have the feeling that you're more into these technical operations of exchanges and, and bigger nodes and things like that. Um, I think it just happens that way. We're, uh, we're more of an engineering organization than um, building, uh, I guess, user experiences and application level things. So uh, I think L&D has their own client. We don't have a, a, a client that the average person can download and use for C-Lightning right now. I think there's one wallet called Spark, but that's maintained by Shesek. But um, we, we have yet to integrate it into our own wallets like Blockstream Green and Aqua. But that is something on our roadmap that we want to do. Now you answered my next question, basically, <laughs> because um, what you also do is the Blockstream Green wallet and the Aqua wallet. And I think Blockstream Green is especially for individuals. So I'm using it too. And um, so are you developing those wallets also to like include your own protocols and, and products? Yeah, I think so. Um, we do want to support Lightning in our wallets. Um, I think the use case for different, the different wallets is more that uh, Aqua is for beginners. So you might recommend that to your family that's not technical and they've never used a wallet before. It's very easy to download and get it set up really quickly from the iOS store. We don't have the Android version yet. Uh, for green, I would say it's more for power users. You can plug in hardware wallet support. Um, there's a lot more bells and whistles. You have uh, support for Tor. Um, and yeah, I think more advanced things like coin control will be coming out in green that we won't be adding to Aqua. 
Uh, for Aqua, I think what I want to do is roll out more ways for people to buy Bitcoin in that app. It's more for it's more for you know people just starting out. So we already support Wire in Aqua, but we can add additional ones, additional uh, payment providers where people can use their credit card or debit card to buy Bitcoin in the app. Uh, interesting. I didn't know that. I thought Aqua is more a liquid uh, wallet than. Uh... Both of them support liquid. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually, oh, okay. I, ho I hope both will support Lightning. Oh, that's interesting. And uh, when do you think, do you have the Android uh, Aqua wallet? Um, we haven't actually started on that yet. It's been <laughs> okay. on the back burner. The main focus right now is still on, on green and doing some updates. Oh, okay, I understand. Yeah, cool. Um, so now you're not only building wallets and protocols, you also maintain uh, the Blockstream satellites. Uh, many people don't know that uh, Bitcoin is sent from space uh, all t every 10 minutes a new block. Um, yeah. When did you start that project and why? Uh, I think we announced it in 2017, I, I believe. Um, so I, I guess the reasoning is we're investing in building all of this technology on top of Bitcoin. And we want to make sure that the base layer is secure and would not uh, suffer from things like network splits. So because Bitcoin is still uh, a network relying on the internet, you can have potential situations where the network um, is, is, is split by an internet outage in a region or a country. Um, undersea cables they, for internet, they get cut all the time. And then you know some country will be cut off from the internet. Um, and I think just having the satellite service broadcast those Bitcoin blocks, it can mitigate that threat because as long as one person in that region is still running uh, a Bitcoin node and getting blocks from the satellite, they can keep their, their local territory in sync with the rest of the Bitcoin network. And I, I think that makes Bitcoin more resilient and more nuclear proof. So it's, uh, it's a way for us to uh, improve the Bitcoin network in some way. But it, we also have additional uses for the Blockstream satellite project. So uh, as you know, we do, we do mining as well. So we can actually set up in, I don't know, the middle of the desert and get the Bitcoin blockchain through the satellite network and just broadcast blocks through uh, a satellite phone or something like that, or <laughs> through SMS when found. So it allows us to, to mine effectively anywhere in the world without needing an internet connection. Mm -hmm. But how do you get the signal back? Like uh, if you mine something, you need to get it back into the network. How does this work? Is it bi-directional already or not? No, so blockchain satellite is uh, one direction. You just get the blocks um, and you can actually sync the entire Bitcoin blockchain um, without any internet connection. So we're basically rebroadcasting the Bitcoin blockchain over and over, uh, over a period of two weeks, as well as the Bitcoin core client too. So you can set up with a dish in the desert and, and get the Bitcoin client over satellite and download the Bitcoin blockchain over satellite from Genesis block. But yeah, to if you're mining with Blockstream satellite, all you need to do is broadcast the, the block that you found. And that does not require a lot of bandwidth. So you can do it through SMS. You can do it through you know, cell phone or you can just do it through satellite, uh, so satellite phone. It's only a small text file. Yeah, it's a very small bit of information relative to the, the Bitcoin blockchain, which is gigabytes every month. But don't you have to be very fast? I mean, as soon as you found it, don't you have to send it yes, immediately? Yes, you, you do. But, uh, uh, but I, I don't think that you need to have the fastest internet to broadcast that because the information is very small. So you just have to mm -hmm. get it out there and you should be okay. That's interesting. 
And um, do you have, I mean, it's not, it's not, they are not your own satellites. You didn't buy it and uh, shoot it into space. You lease, you're leasing it, I guess. Yes. For now, yes. we're leasing it, but who For knows? Now. Maybe, <laughs> maybe yeah. at 100K, Bitcoin will launch our own. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you also sell uh, kits like uh, for everybody to, to buy at your store and then um, set it up at home. Um, how easy is that for like a, a ever an average uh, user? Um, I still think it's quite difficult. Uh, you should be a power user to set it up. You have to follow. There are guides to follow, but it, it's really not um, you know click and install yet. Mm. The the newest kit we have, the base station, simplifies a lot of the uh, uh, the setup. If you bought the older pro kits, they require additional work setting up. But the base station is just a, a flat panel. And it's all in one. You just plug that into your computer and you're good to go. Uh, but still, like setting everything up does take a bit of effort and a bit of know-how or patience to go through the guides. Um, but I think we're working towards improving it and making it more easy to set up for you know, a non-technical user. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you have a number like a, or an estimate how many people have bought it and used it? Yeah, so um, we can't track who is using the service because mm. it's a broadcast service. So there's no way to know who has dishes set up and is getting the signal. But we do know that we've sold hundreds of these uh, kits and um, base stations already. Um, I think uh, the last base station, we, we, when we launched the base station, we had 70 uh, of the boxes up in our store and they sold out within a, a week or two. So <laughs> the demand is actually quite high. Um, but you don't actually need to buy a kit from Blockstream. You can actually do this uh, DIY if you're inclined. You can buy the parts over Amazon and set it all up yourself. All you need is a dish and some parts, and you're basically good to go. Mm -hmm. Cool. And you have the description how it works. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Um, so, yeah, now next topic, mining. <laughs> so you're also into mining. Um, since when are you? Uh, is Blockstream into mining? And are you professionalizing that now to like make it open for other clients and people? How, how did this start? And what's the goal? Yeah, so after I, I joined Blockstream, I talked to Adam. I said, we should get mining. We should get started with mining. So we kind of started out small and, and bought some containers and did our own mining operation. And then we, um, we secured a site in Quebec. Um, and then later on, we secured a site in, uh, in Georgia, in the USA. So we've got about 300 megawatts between the two sites, and we're still expanding. Um, and I think we're one of the largest miners in North America still. So... We, we serve a number of big clients. Uh, Fidelity is one of our clients, uh, Reed Hoffman, um, Galaxy Digital, BlockFi, and we've announced a partnership with Acre, um, mm -hmm. a CT from Acre. So they're also interested to do some mining as well. So primarily our clients right now are larger institutions and companies, but one of our goals was to help to make mining accessible for you know an average person so down the road what we do hope and we still want to do is be able to you know have someone send us 10 miners and we can rack it up but we're just a hosting service so um, we're, we're just hosting other people's machines in our facilities mm -hmm. so these companies that you uh, named now are basically bought hosting machines and you are doing the technical hosting and all the stuff around. So they don't have to uh, care about uh, the technical um, stuff. Yes. So uh, they buy some of their own machines or they have their own machines. Uh, we also help some people secure some machines too, because we have um, 
good connections with the manufacturers in China to secure supply. Uh, but yeah, we can pretty much help them out if they don't have hardware. But uh, right now, it is difficult to get ASICs. Uh, there's still a shortage, even though mm -hmm. the prices drop. There's still a shortage. Mm -hmm. And do you think that will change soon, or um, is the bull market going to go uh, like start again? Or I mean, it never stopped. I think. Yeah. Well, there's a, a number of uh, secondhand machines available right now, but with secondhand machines, there are some risks. You know, you know, you don't know how long they'll last for. It's better to buy new machines if possible. Um, but in terms of new machines, I, I think supply is still quite limited and. Um, Deliveries are probably pushed out into Q, Q, late Q1, early Q2 next year. So mm -hmm. I don't see that really changing right now, even with lower price, because it's still very profitable to mine if you have a um, cheap power and eff efficient operations. Mm -hmm. So now you were talking about power. And of course, now uh, the next question is, uh, where does Blockstream Mining get its power from? I mean, uh, we have a lot of discussions uh, around that topic now. So that would be really, really interesting. Do you mine from hydropower? Yeah, so the facility in, in Canada is completely hydropower. Um, so 100%. Uh, or 99%, whatever the local grid is. In the US, I think we have a mix of uh, renewables and a large chunk of that is nuclear power. So it depends on what your view is. Is nuclear a good or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing uh, because there's no carbon emissions and it's quite safe. Nuclear often gets a, a bad rep. But I think it's one of the safer, more reliable technologies out there for power generation. I don't know. I can't say that. I mean, I, I live in Europe and we had Chernobyl in 1986. And I think we're all very uh, against nuclear because of this experience. I mean, it was life changing, actually. Um, but yeah, I understand. And um, so you say you also have relations to China. You worked for BTC China once. Um, what do you think about all these uh, FUD and news stories coming out of China about mining? Uh, I think it's a bit um, overblown. Uh, it just seemed like recently in the last couple of weeks, there was a lot of recycled news. And it, it just came to, uh, to such a head. Like everything just came out at once. And a lot of those things were not new. So... You know, Elon Musk threw a lot of FUD out there about Bitcoin using too much energy. And then you had the news about China clamping down on miners. But, you know, they, China has been clamping down on mining for some time now, especially in Inner Mongolia, where it's mostly coal power. And I, I think it also has to do with a lot of people mining in Inner Mongolia that have been uh, misappropriating subsidized power that are intended for data centers. So... It's a bit more complicated than the Western media has made it out to be, which is China doesn't want mining anymore. So it's been ongoing for a while, and it's more targeting people not using uh, electricity for what it's meant to be, the subsidized power. But um, you know, I, I think it's just going to be a gradual exodus. Like A lot of miners have already moved out of Inner Mongolia even before that recent round of FUD came out. So it's not like it's a new thing, and it's been an ongoing process. Um, there's some news that there may be some mandates coming in Sichuan, in western China, about the miners there that are using hydropower. And that's actually where most of the mining does take place, using hydropower in China. Uh, but, you know, it, no matter what the news says, it's not going to be instantly tomorrow, all the mining is going to shut off. It'll be a slow, orderly process where you know people ramp down, they stop spinning up new operations, and they, they move out. And one of the things is... Um, 
they'll move out to probably places with uh, greener energy, like in North America. There's abundant power here, and the barrier is mostly political. So there's um, an excess of hydropower in Quebec, actually, and it's just wasted every year. But uh, the government in, in Quebec has not been very friendly allocating power to miners. So we'll see what happens. But it's not really um, an issue about miners using too much power or using uh, non-green energy. It's more about, you know, are the, are the utility providers, are the governments making it easy for people or miners to access that green energy? And I think that the jury is still out on that. Mm -hmm. But isn't that maybe in the future, won't it become a problem maybe when governments see they can basically block miners from uh, getting cheap energy? I mean, they should start mine themselves, but they won't, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, everyone likes to have, to have fun staying poor. So, you know, I, Canada has gotten rid of most of its gold reserves. And, um, you know, one thing that we could have done was mine Bitcoin with excess hydropower. But, you know, we never do anything smart. So <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but, but, I mean, there's always a political roadblocks to everything. It's just the world that we live in now. And I think Bitcoin will fix that slowly over time. But, you know, I mean, even in India, there's like uh, rumors of government banning or the central bank banning Bitcoin at any time. And blocking access to power is really no different. It's just whichever way the political wind is swaying at that time. Mm -hmm. And you don't think that it's a danger for Bitcoin anymore? It's too far, too big? Well, it, it doesn't really matter in the end because there will be countries that uh, look favorably upon that as an economic stimulus or a way for them to, um, to mine for themselves. And, you know, if, if say, Canada doesn't want to give more power, maybe there's, uh, there's uh, states in the U.S. that are more friendly, right? Texas is quite open and friendly. And as you've seen, Miami is quite friendly to Bitcoin, too. So it doesn't really matter in the end. The world's a very big place and there are many different jurisdictions for miners to go to that will have favorable conditions. Mm -hmm. And uh, you were saying before that you want to open up mining to, to basically almost everybody, but don't you have a, a minimum investment needed for uh, Bitcoin mining at your uh, facilities? Well, is for this now, a different? Is this the token? It, it, uh, it's I different. Think, mm -hmm. So the token right now is a security token. And it's issued through a Luxembourg securitization vehicle. And to adhere to the regulations there, the size is 200,000 euros, um, just to make sure it is uh, approved by the regulator. So that is why it's a very high minimum. But I was saying earlier, we want to be able to host uh, individual miners at our facilities down the road mm -hmm. for smaller amounts of machines. So like you, Anita, you would buy some machines and send them to us and we could host them. That That mm -hmm. is the end game there. But um, the BMN is a separate thing that we're doing, which is tokenization of our, our mining a portion of our mining operation. And I think that will actually let people get exposure to mining because once the, um, the blockchain mining note, the BMN is listed on exchanges, uh, anybody could buy a portion of it. So you don't need to buy a, a single blockchain mining note, which is 200,000 euros. You can buy a fraction of a blockchain mining note. Oh, that's interesting. So everybody can invest in mining then without raising a finger, you lifting a finger. You only need a uh, amount of money. Yeah. So it, it's a, it's a way for you to get Bitcoin mining exposure without having to commit to CapEx. You don't have to buy a mining rig and it is liquid because it is a security token and 
when it is listed on exchanges, you can get out any time. You just sell it to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, but the payout of the blockchain mining note is at the end of a three-year period. So you effectively get all the Bitcoin that has been mined um, with 2,000 terahash at the end of that three-year period. Mm-hmm. So it's also a longer period. It's not for people who want to be rich uh, in a day. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah, you were talking about your start in Bitcoin uh, when you tried uh, mining at home. So now you've got your own mining with Blockstream. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So and um, I mean, for me as an individual, I would rather have you also buy the machines because I wouldn't know what's the best deal where where to buy the machine now. So that would be a great offer to say I I want to buy one miner from you and you host it and uh, yeah maybe. That would be interesting too. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, is there any product we have not uh, been talking about? <laughs> no, I think we've just been talking about blockchain products the whole day. Um, it, let me think. Is there anything else? Um, I, we have Blockstream AMP, which is the platform that manages tokens on top of the Liquid Network, and that is what we use to issue the Blockstream mining note. So. Uh, any any liquid token is effectively permissionless. So you can issue a liquid token, I can issue a liquid token, but for a security token, you need to apply certain permissions to it. So it can only be transferred to uh, other whitelisted investors. So we have this platform that manages liquid assets um, using a policy server and of two a two of two blo- uh, Bitcoin signature multisig. So we effectively can achieve the same thing as a smart contract without stuffing smart contracting stuff into the the chain like ethereum mm-hmm. okay cool yes i yeah i'm fascinated by all these uh, uh layer two three four uh, technologies that are on top of bitcoin um um now i wanted to ah uh, yeah let's talk about the nft uh platform i mean that's also interesting that blockstream is going uh into like enabling nfts what was the the platform called or the protocol right so the the platform itself we just call it the lnft platform liquid nft platform so uh, an nft is really just a single issue token so if you take tether for example uh it's just a token but all of them are fungible with one another but um, an NFT is effectively a one of one. So you basically issue uh, a Tether USD once and then you issue another one and they're just separate issuances. And this platform just lets you do that easily. So as an artist, you upload your artwork and it, it will help you issue that token for you and add it to the Blockstream registry and also um, uh, put a hash of it into the registry, into the token as well of the artwork. So it's just automating a lot of that to, for an artist to make it easy for them because they're not that technical for the most part. So they just want to create their art and create their NFT. So the instance of the LNFT platform that we are operating right now is called Raritoshi. Uh, that's uh, rare, like rare, it's a very rare stake. And then Toshi like Satoshi. And it's just a curated art platform that we're onboarding artists one by one. And they can put their artwork up. Crypto Graffiti was the first artist that we worked with, and he was the first one up. And today, I think we added uh, Rare Skrilla, and he has his artwork up there too now. And you basically bid on these things with uh, using Liquid Bitcoin. So you can deposit to a web wallet that's generated on the site. You can deposit with Lightning, uh, with Bitcoin or Liquid Bitcoin. But the, every bid on the auction is using a partially signed elements transaction. So it's a 
partially signed liquid transaction effectively. And that's how we do the bidding. So you're committing your funds to the artist and then the highest bidder will pay out. Ah, I understand. And what do you say about the Bitcoin maximalist critics uh, that NFTs are all a scam? <laughs> well, I think uh, a lot of NFTs are scams and they're, they're not really impressive artworks. You know, if you look at some of the Ethereum ones where anybody can upload anything, it's a lot of garbage or they just download images from the internet <laughs> and upload that and say, here's an NFT or they post a selfie and say it's an NFT. But I, I think there is a place for it for real artists that are doing real artwork. And it's a way for uh, people to patronize those artists that they can sell the NFT of their artwork. So I, I think so far we haven't had a lot of pushback or hate on this platform. And it, it probably has a lot to do with the, the fact that it's like all Bitcoin artists. So the artists are going to make their artwork somewhere. Do you want them to do it on Liquid or on some you know, shitcoin chain? And I think the answer is that it's better for them to do it on Liquid and earn Liquid Bitcoin than it is to you know, mint a Ether token. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was talking to Rare Skriller the other day um, and he said exactly that. I mean, he just wants to make his art and he wants to experience those new developments and innovations. And he's a Bitcoin artist, but of course he would prefer to put it on a, a Bitcoin sidechain or something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what are other uh, innovations uh, that you're working on um, that we might not know now? Hmm. I mean, aside from NFTs, um, is there something else? Uh... <laughs> Nothing I can talk about right now, but ah, okay. uh, yeah. <laughs> there there's, al there's always a lot of stuff underway at Blockstream. We have a number of different projects that have not yet been announced. Okay. So we prefer to announce it when it's ready to go rather than saying, you know, here's something that we're announcing and it's going to come out in a few months time. Mm, I understand that. Okay. So um, can you please um, tell us what your personal thoughts are on the future of Bitcoin from now, where we had this, or as many people call it, bloodbath. I mean, it's a healthy uh, uh, breakdown of the price, I guess. Um, what do you think? Where we do, do we go from here? I, I mean, in terms of price? In terms of Bitcoin in general. I'm not so much talking about price. I mean... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think Bitcoin in general, the adoption is going to keep accelerating. Um, a lot of people are scared right now because of the recent dip. But I, I think it's just part of uh, the Bitcoin cycle. You know, it goes up and it comes down and it goes up again. And the fundamentals have not changed. Like uh, institutions are still buying Bitcoin. Um, they're still onboarding and they're still accumulating. And uh, the need for Bitcoin has not changed either. So I think in, in Europe, um, I think it's in Switzerland. Uh, they have negative interest, interest rates now over 200,000 euro deposits. So you know, where can you keep your money safe? Um, if you look at all the things that uh, Michael Saylor identified before he got into Bitcoin uh, about inflation and the dollar basically melting, none of that has changed. <laughs> it's like the Bitcoin price has gone down a bit, but all those fundamental issues with the world that we see and have to live with are still present. So. I don't really think it, this is over and we're just going to see more and more adoption. There's always like, you know, cycles in Bitcoin and this is just one part of that cycle. Mm. And I think many businesses and institutions and investors are coming into the space now, but uh, they won't talk about it too, because most of them also, I guess, don't want the public to know what they're doing with their money. Yeah, well, I think public companies will have to disclose, but a lot of uh, private companies don't need to, and they would just 
add Bitcoin to their balance sheet quietly. So there's no, there's no real need to disclose either, right? There's, there's no need to tell people what assets you're holding as a private company. And I think also a lot of individuals are going to buy now at this price point just because there's no better place to park your assets. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, we're coming to my last question. What do you think do most people overlook when they talk about Bitcoin? So what you, are you missing in the public discourse maybe about it? Um, <laughs> I don't know. The public discourse, if you're looking at mainstream media, is quite bad. It's either... Uh, It's either good news or bad news. There's no real intelligent discourse about the, the need for Bitcoin, right? And uh, it's similar to the education system. Like you're not taught about money. So the underlying need for Bitcoin, the why Bitcoin is really never addressed. It's either, you know, Bitcoin is going to the moon, it's, it's prices went up a lot, or, you know, Bitcoin's killing the environment. There's no really intelligent discourse. So I would say the best thing to do is look at some of those resources that uh, Bitcoiners are putting out there. Jameson Lopp has a good site. Michael Saylor has been doing some good work with hope.com and aggregating a lot of uh, educational materials uh, for his uh, Saylor Academy too. And I think uh, Stefan Levera has been contributing to that along with a number of other people. But these resources are out there. And if you want to see if you've missed anything, I think that's the best place to look, not just the general public discourse. Mm, that's True, exactly. You have to fall down the rabbit hole a little bit <laughs> and go to the sources. Yeah. 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 Samson, thank you very much. Did we miss anything? Uh, do you want to tell us anything that we were not talking about? Uh, no, I think um, I'm pretty good. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, it was very interesting to have you on. Um, yeah. And all the best for the future. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks so much for joining the Anita Posh Show today to learn more about Bitcoin. You can find the show notes for this conversation on anita.link slash show. If you want to get the best stories in Bitcoin from my point of view in your mailbox, go to anita.link slash weekly and subscribe. And if you have a question or just want to send me some feedback, drop me a line at hello at anitaposh.com. See you next week when it's time for the Anita Posh Show. Music, start with yes, delicate beats. Content, idea and production, Anita Posh. <laughs>